Paranormal occurrences can at times be explained by rational events. Perhaps a draft or just an old house creaking like old houses tend to do. But some things are undeniable, such as in a case recently out of Indiana where members of the Indiana Department of Child Services were investigating a woman's home in regards to suspicion of abuse and neglect on her children. The woman insisted that her family was being oppressed by demons. Flies began showing up in massive quantities and unexplained noises started coming from the basement. At this point, the woman would appear to be crazy and the children would have been taken without a second thought. That was until, according to the official records and to the horror of the Department of Child Services, the woman's nine-year-old son began walking up the wall backwards. Demonic possessions, when a person gets a little too far in their search for the paranormal. Some return none the wiser, while others return with something a little more. Clara Sile, a 16-year-old girl from South Africa, was a devout Christian. She attended school at St. Michael's Mission and regularly studied scripture as part of her curriculum. Unfortunately, lessons of the devil piqued the girl's interest in unexpected ways, and soon she was making attempts to communicate with Satan, and even went so far as to make a pact with him. This inevitably led to a sudden and drastic change in her behavior, one that numerous people will never forget. It would seem that Clara had opened a door to something she thought she wanted inside. Turns out she had no idea what she was in for. Clara's behavior turned from that of a reserved 16-year-old Christian girl into that of a horrific animal. She went to such extremes that it terrified the numerous onlookers. Suddenly repulsed by the Christian symbol she once held dear, she would lash out with unparalleled ferocity. She was said to be imbued with inhuman strength, often hurling attending nuns across the room and beating them violently. One of the nuns spoke very clearly regarding the event. She said no animal had ever made such sounds, neither the lions of East Africa nor the angry bulls. At times it sounded like a veritable herd of wild beasts orchestrated by Satan. Those involved came to the inevitable conclusion that Clara would have to undergo an exorcism. Immediately upon initiating an exorcism, the priest who was conducting it had his Bible smacked from his hands and Clara began violently choking him with his own stole. Her incredible strength was difficult to combat. Mental illness, perhaps? Well, there were two things that led those in attendance to believe otherwise. The use of holy water would briefly bring the girl out of her fits and return her to herself. But that didn't last long at all, not to mention that before a crowd of over 100 people, Clara began to lift off the ground unassisted and levitated five feet in the air. She did this multiple times. After two solid days of exercising the girl, she was eventually freed from her demons and went on to live a relatively normal life. Roland Doe, a fake name given to a boy to protect his identity after the horrible things that had happened to him. Roland was born in Maryland in the 1940s, an only child he depended on family members to play with. One of his favorites was his Aunt Harriet. 
Aunt Harriet was a passionate spiritualist and made the unfortunate decision one day to introduce Roland to a Ouija board, explaining how much fun they were. He immediately took interest in it. Eventually one day, Aunt Harriet passed away and things around Roland began to change. Family members took note of strange, unexplainable noises emitting from areas of the house. When Roland was around, objects would begin to move on their own, furniture would shift, objects would hover. Roland, now a bit older, seemed to carry with him an unavoidable darkness. The family notified their pastor, who recommended that Roland spend a night in his home so he could better observe him. After one night, the pastor made the recommendation that Roland go and see a Catholic priest after his furniture started to move around by itself. Roland became more and more sinister. He was brought to Georgetown University Hospital and had to be restrained to the bed while the exorcism was initiated. Roland granted inhuman strength, tore free from his restraint, and reached under his mattress to pull out a bed spring. He slashed out at the priest and gashed his arm open, halting the exorcism for the day. Eventually, Roland was taken to a relative's house where two priests came forward to analyze the situation. After the bed shook violently and objects flew freely around the room, the Archbishop granted them permission to bring him to a hospital to exorcise him. Just before they had started, on Roland's body, words started to appear. Among numerous other cuts and marks, the word evil began to carve itself through Roland's flesh, with the word hell following with it. During the exorcism, the bed continued to shake and tremble, and Roland was more than difficult to contain. He got so far as crushing one of the priest's noses. There were over two dozen attempts to remove the demons. The exorcism ended successfully, with a beastly cry from the boy's throat, and the psychiatric wing of the hospital filled with an unbearable sulfuric stench. It was reported that Roland went on to live a normal life, however, his story did inspire the 1973 horror classic, The Exorcist. Julia, the only name known for a girl deemed possessed. However, she was not deemed possessed by a priest, but by a board-certified psychiatrist and an assistant professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College. Julia didn't quite know what she was getting into. She had a long history of involving herself with satanic groups and performing rituals. Eventually, it caught up with her and she learned the hard way that Satan offered nothing she could ever want. She was plagued by the presence of a demon existing inside of her, so the only action that could be taken was taken. A priest was contacted, but to analyze the possibility of mental illness, Dr. Richard Gallagher, a psychiatrist, also met with Julia. He had no idea what was in store for him. The exorcism began on a warm day in June. Dr. Gallagher remembers the warmth well, as without any explanation, the room the exorcism was to take place in wasn't warm at all. It was freezing cold. But this didn't last very long. As the process got underway, the room began to steadily heat up until the intensity of the heat would rise to such a degree that all those in the room were barely able to stand it. Julia was quiet for a time, calm, almost relaxed. But as the exorcism moved forward, she suddenly began to change. She made noises beastly in nature. The group, consisting of priests, deacons, nuns, and the two psychiatry experts, all agreed that the sounds made were not human and wouldn't be possible within a human's ability. More surprisingly, she began to speak. 
but in other languages, languages she didn't know. Julia only spoke English, but out of all the ramblings, those attending were able to detect Spanish and Latin. Perhaps most unsettling of all was that Julia knew the deepest, most intimate secrets of those in the room, and even flexed her power teasingly, saying to one of the team members, those cats really went berserk last night, didn't they? That team member returned home in another city to find that his two cats had violently attacked one another. The two cats never fought before then. Julia cursed and spit at anybody she could. She screamed phrases like, leave her alone, you'll be sorry, and she repeatedly called the nuns whores. Julia, keeping in fashion with the possessed, inherited incredible strength. It took over five people to hold her still, and even then they struggled immensely to keep her contained. That was before she began levitating in her chair over a half of a foot above the floor. She remained that way for over 30 minutes. Dr. Gallagher has never forgotten the horror he experienced. Julia was freed from her demons. However, whether or not she returned to satanic rituals is unknown. It doesn't really matter where your opinion lies on the topic because one thing is for certain, there is true evil in this world and it may just find you one way or another. Ghosts, without doubt, one of the greatest mysteries of our world. Do they exist or not? Chilling stories of encountering specters are as ancient as the tongue of mankind, and saying eyewitness accounts are unnerving is a grave understatement. Antebellum mansions all across the southern United States carry notorious histories of sweat, blood, and maybe a few spirits. However, one particular plantation home seemed to attract the supernatural even at its construction. Rocky Hill Castle in the 1840s, a charming abode in the Alabama countryside that belonged to James E. Saunders and his wife, Mary Frances Watkins. After the French architect completed the brilliant home, James, though a wealthy man, could not pay the expenses. Infuriated, James yelled viciously at the architect, refusing to pay him. The Frenchman left in a fury, cursing the mansion and its deceitful occupants. The architect passed away shortly after. Meanwhile, James and his family were dining merrily when a loud beating noise resounded from the cellar, rattling the entire frame of the house, as if somebody was destroying the foundation. When they investigated, they discovered nothing but empty darkness. This occurred numerous times, especially when the family gathered around their piano. Later, James added a tower to Rocky Hill Castle, which he used to hide Confederate soldiers. Two unnamed soldiers died from their injuries and were buried in the family cemetery. It is believed that one of the dead soldiers attracted the phantom of his deceased maiden, who appeared routinely walking listlessly in the tower before fading. One day, as Mary approached the stairwell, an ethereal woman descended the stairs in front of her. James often teased his wife about the ghost that she claimed to see, but stopped when he had an experience of his own. One day, James went to retrieve a bottle of wine from the cellar, but froze in terror upon seeing the same ghostly woman sitting on a box, smiling eerily at him. He backed away and slammed the cellar door shut, forgetting about his wine. 
After many other spectral incidents, James's family left the house. Throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries, families frequently moved in and out due to the paranormal activity. Eventually, the spirits of Rocky Hill Castle finally claimed the mansion as their own until 1961, when it was demolished. However, it is said that a darkness still lingers over the grounds. From wraiths in formidable castles to shadows darting through subterranean tunnels adorned with bones, it seems as if spirits cannot help but occupy Europe's enchanting lands. But there are some cases that stand out from the rest. In the small district of Battersea, London, rests an ordinary house on Eland Road that holds a forbidding past. Its former occupants, the Robinson family, began to experience unsettling events in 1927. 86-year-old Henry Robinson was a resident for 25 years and lived with his son, Frederick, and three daughters, Lila, Kate, and Mrs. George Perkins, who was widowed and had a 14-year-old son. On the evening of November 29th, the family was terrorized by a loud rapping all throughout the house and a ceaseless knocking from the outside, which shattered the window panes. When Frederick found the courage to investigate, he found chunks of coal and coins had fallen upon the conservatory, breaking the glass. When it happened again weeks later, the family asked the police to monitor the house, suspecting vandals were to blame. Still, the coins and small objects once more fell upon the house. Police couldn't explain the phenomenon. Then, on December 19th, the washerwoman told Frederick she no longer wanted to work in the house after she uncovered a pile of burning embers in the outhouse, despite there having been no fire. Another night, one of the sisters witnessed a hall stand shaking on its own, tipping over. Frederick caught it, but an invisible force aggressively pulled it out of his hands and threw it down the stairway, breaking it in two. One morning, the knocking persisted until a window broke and a thick-set chest of drawers collapsed to the floor. Eventually, the local press wrote about the incidents and caught the attention of British psychic researcher and author Harry Price. Harry paid a visit in January and noticed severe damage to the house, noting the accounts of Kate, Mrs. George Perkins, and Frederick. The following evening, Frederick was apprehended by the authorities to be psychologically evaluated, but was later released. Police did not believe he orchestrated the events, especially since his absence did not stop the pandemonium. But with time, the occurrences diminished, Eland Road became quiet, and the Robinson family was finally, for reasons unknown, left in peace. The lush landscape of rural England is scattered with innumerable legends, and among those legends is one that has bestowed a curious image upon mankind. Raynham Hall was a lofty country house built in 1619 by Sir Roger Townshend. Nearly a century later, in 1713, Charles Townshend, the estate's second Viscount, married Dorothy Walpole, the rumored mistress of another prominent Count, Lord Wharton. 
When Dorothy's husband discovered the affair, he locked her away within Raynham Hall to pace the halls alone, separated from her children. Sir Roger told everyone that she had passed away, conducting a fake funeral to corroborate his claims. Officially, Dorothy perished of smallpox in 1726, but others claim she broke her neck after being pushed down the main staircase. Since her death, the number of ghost sightings at Raynham increased, with the first occurring in 1835. During a Christmas party, a guest claimed to have seen a woman in brown wandering the halls. When he neared her, she turned to face him, revealing hollow eye sockets. One year later, a man named Captain Frederick Marriott requested to spend the night at Raynham Hall to disprove any ghostly claims. During his stay, a spectral woman carrying a lamp grinned menacingly at Frederick in the weak, flickering glow. Terrified, Frederick took a shot with his revolver and the spirit dissolved into darkness. Throughout the years, the occupants of Raynham Hall encountered the Lady in Brown. Then, in September of 1936, a photographer and his assistant from Country Life magazine visited the house to take pictures. After taking the first shot of the grand staircase, the photographer and his assistant noticed an odd, wraith-like figure descending the steps. Their photograph of the misty entity has become one of the most widely recognized images of the supernatural. To this day, the Townshend family are still rightful owners of Raynham Hall, and we can only assume they still see the infamous Lady in Brown. Attics are places that many individuals dread, the stuffy air and the enveloping darkness where one never knows if there is something ill-intentioned lying in wait. In November of 1988, Jackie Hernandez and her two-year-old son moved into their new home in San Pedro, California, in hopes of turning over a new leaf. Jackie's catastrophic marriage ended, leaving her pregnant, but the nightmare was just beginning. The family cat exhibited abnormal behavior, chasing unseen things throughout the house, but Jackie ignored this. However, she couldn't ignore when pencils were flung at her from their pencil holder. After this, Jackie realized something wasn't right. The beds collapsed for no apparent reason, and a sticky substance leached through the kitchen walls while muffled voices could be heard emanating from the attic. After Jackie's daughter Samantha was born in April of 1989, the true horror commenced. Frightening dreams disturbed Jackie's sleep, one in particular of a man being beaten to death near the San Pedro Harbor. One night, Jackie got up to use the restroom and discovered an old man with gray skin sitting on the side of her son's bunk bed. Before she could react, he vanished into thin air. Jackie later saw the same old man peering down at her through the trap door of the attic. The unearthly occurrences fascinated paranormal researcher and parapsychologist Dr. Barry Taff. Barry and his team came to Jackie's house to conduct an investigation, armed with video cameras and infrared detectors. After hearing shuffling in the attic, they climbed through the trap door to investigate, and the photographer had his camera wrenched from his hand. He gazed across the room with a flashlight to see his camera lying perfectly in a small crate. Later that night, the investigators took samples of a bizarre liquid oozing from a light switch 
and shipped it off to a lab to be tested. The results said the substance was blood plasma from a male. Dr. Taff and his crew later returned for another investigation, taking to the attic again. As they cautiously walked through the darkness, a clothesline abruptly caught hold of the photographer's neck and began to strangle him. His partner didn't realize what was happening until he snapped a photo of Jeff desperately struggling to free himself. After freeing the photographer, Dr. Taft's team left immediately. Jackie decided to move back into her husband's trailer 300 miles away. The sinister activity followed, however. One day, Jackie and a few neighbors were putting a TV into a shed when the old man materialized on the screen. That night, Jackie heard a wrathful pounding originating from the shed. Once more, Dr. Taft came, only this time they brought a Ouija board. It revealed to them that the specter was a young man who was murdered in the San Pedro Harbor in 1930. His killer was the original owner of the San Pedro house. Jackie researched and dug through archives, matching the spirit to a sailor named Herman Hendrickson, whose body was found in the surrounding bay waters. She also identified the old man as John Damon, the builder and first resident of the San Pedro house. Since the fearful events, the ghosts have left Jackie and her family alone. However, to this day, neighbors still hear shuffling in the attic of the San Pedro house at night. Hauntings are usually relatively tame. Perhaps a common household item goes missing or a door opens by itself. But there are some instances where a spirit can threaten lives. In 1973, Jack and Janet Smurl fled Hurricane Agnes with their two children and moved into a duplex in West Pittston, Pennsylvania. Jack's parents, John and Mary Smurl, purchased the home for only $18,000, but it was in dire need of renovation. While Jack and his family occupied one side of the house, his parents resided in the other. The family spent many hours fixing up their quiet home, and for the first 18 months, their lives were fairly normal. That all changed in January of 1974, when several inexplicable events occurred. A television set suddenly caught on fire, a mysterious stain emerged on the new carpet, and water pipes constantly leaked, even after being repaired. The remodeled bathroom had also been severely scratched as if a wild animal had clawed the floor, sink, and bathtub. The incidents worsened for the Smurl family in 1975. Putrid smells drifted through the air. Dawn, the eldest daughter, frequently complained about people floating in her bedroom. Doors opened and shut for no reason. Random footsteps resonated throughout the house. Toilets flushed by themselves and empty chairs rocked on their own. By 1977, the family accepted that their house was indeed haunted. But with two young children, Shannon and Karen, the concern only grew. By 1985, the hauntings turned dangerous. Jack's parents heard abusive and vulgar arguing from the other side of the house, but Jack and Janet hadn't been fighting. In February of that same year, Janet began hearing her name called by a malicious voice while doing laundry in the basement. The house often became bitterly cold despite having a proper heating unit. Black, shadowy figures also moved through the home, staring at members of the family 
before disappearing. A ceiling fan fell inches from Shannon, almost killing her. Jan and Jack were dragged out of their beds in the middle of the night. Their German shepherd Simon was thrown several times. Scratching noises persisted through the walls, and Shannon was hurled out of her bed and down the stairs by an unseen force. In January of 1986, the family contacted demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren to investigate. The Warrens also brought Rosemary Froy, a nurse and psychic. As they walked through the house, the Warrens questioned Jack and Janet about their religious beliefs, the current state of their family, and if they had ever been involved in the occult. After meticulously inspecting the home, Rosemary told the Smurls that their house was inhabited by four spirits. The first was a friendly elderly woman. The second was a restless girl. The third was an anguished man that had died in the house. And the fourth was a vicious demon. The Warrens and Rosemary urged Jack and Janet to display religious symbols throughout the house and have praying sessions regularly. Unfortunately, this did not stop the demon from assaulting Jack and Janet. Catholic priests visited the Smurls' home on several occasions to try and witness the demonic activity for themselves, but never once had a negative experience. In 1987, the family left their home, but the demon followed them to their new residence. An exorcism was performed in the Smurls' new home in 1989, and the demon finally ceased its destruction. The story has been dissected by journalists, television producers, priests, and skeptics of the paranormal. Today, Jack, Janet, and their family continue to live undisturbed. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.